from the Department of Surgery at the University of Wisconsin. Welcome to The Set, a podcast that explores the motivations, experiences, and secrets to success from interesting people in and out of the field of surgery. With some humor mixed in, I'm your host, Sir Josh Mesrich, a transplant surgeon, part-time comedian, and somewhat successful fashion model in Madison, Wisconsin, home of the Badgers. The celebrity I most look like is Brad Pitt, although lately some people are saying I look more like Matthew McConaughey since I have been growing my hair out during COVID. All right, all right, all right, all right. Michael Anglesby is the Cyrenus G. Darling Senior MD and Cyrenus G. Darling Junior MD, Professor of Surgery at the University of Michigan in the section of Transplantation Surgery. He conducts liver and kidney transplant in adults and children. He has an active research group focusing on improving the quality and efficiency of surgical care through practice change. He has been working for years to understand and combat the opioid crisis in Michigan, particularly the role that surgeons have played in this. He is the Associate Director of the Michigan Surgical Quality Collaborative, directs the Michigan Surgical Home and Optimization Program, and co-directs a bunch of other stuff too. He also loves directing traffic. He is funded up the wazoo. He is master of his domain. Michael has competed in three Strongest Man competitions, losing two to Magnus Magnuson. <laughs> He lost one to your host, Joshua Mesrich. In all honesty, the best thing about Mike is he takes on problems in the care of our patients that piss him off, and he uses scientific analysis and best practice to solve these problems. Hey, everybody. Welcome to the set. Today, I am super excited to have Mike Anglesby. I consider Mike an old friend. I met him first when I was doing my transplant fellowship. Mike uh, himself is a transplant surgeon at the University of Michigan. He's a professor of surgery, actually the Cyrenus Darling Senior and Cyrenus Darling Junior Professor of Surgery at the University of Michigan. He also runs a bunch of different things, some of which we'll talk about. He does run the medical student training program uh, in their Department of Surgery. He also runs their collaborative efforts uh, at changing healthcare, and I'm going to let him talk about that. So I'm super excited to have Mike. Mike, welcome to the set. Thank you. Honored to be here with such a esteemed fellow middle-aged surgeon. <laughs> you were you were so right about middle-aged. I, I actually joke that I, although I may be middle-aged chronologically, physiologically, I'm a, a, like a man of 90 years old. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know if it's like this for you, but every day I wake up and there's something new wrong and I like move and I'm like, oh, that's new. Yeah, I have a, uh, I've gotten to know a couple um, physical therapists, uh, kind of like on a cell phone level, you know, texting. So, yes, yeah. <laughs> I know it's sad. I think I found that basically up until 40, everything was functional. And now I'm just trying to hang on for dear life. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, why don't we start? I want to I want to talk a, a little bit about your background, where you grew up and how you got interested in surgery. I've heard some stories about that, but why don't you tell a little bit about where you're from and your first exposure to surgery? Yeah, cool. So I'm from a uh, the suburbs of Philadelphia and southern New Jersey. And I kind of always wanted to be a surgeon. I think I, I, used, I used to like to watch the TV show MASH. I don't know. I thought it was kind of magic. I just kind of, you know, muscled my way through an entitled life and uh, stayed focused on that. I never really changed my mind. I, you know, I went to fancy schools and lots of opportunities, but was always towards um, wanting to be a surgeon. And for that matter, even a transplant surgeon. In fact, there is a good story. So this guy, Mike Deeb, did one of the first heart transplants in Philadelphia 
and he came to my seventh grade class and we talked about it. I was like, oh, that's cool. I'm going to be a transponder. Apparently, I wrote an essay. Fast forward, whatever the time is between seventh grade and intern year, and ended up matching at Michigan. I'm walking down the hallway and Dr. Deeb's like six foot seven. He's like, and I recognize the guy. I'm like, oh my God, that's the guy who talked to my seventh grade class. So I went up to him like, hey, Dr. Deeb. My name's Mike Anglesby. I'm going to be a transplant surgeon. And uh, you talked to my seventh grade class. <laughs> so, And he and I became friends and he just retired about two years ago. So uh, kind of decided early, I guess. That's an incredible story. So first of all, I'm afraid to say we have a lot in common. So I grew up in New Jersey as well, although you were South and I was Central. So that's one difference. But um, I was obsessed with MASH and I always wanted to be Hawkeye Pierce. I loved how he used humor in the OR and I always wanted to be a meatball surgeon. Uh, my goal for this year is to get him on the set. I've been saying that he's coming on. He just doesn't know that he's coming on. Alan Alda. <laughs> he came to the University of Michigan to do some. He's very passionate about, I think, communicating with patients. Yes. And he did some stuff with our medical students. And he was there. And I was too shy to run across the room and give him a hug. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I would definitely hug him. For some reason, he reminds me of my dad, but that's a whole other story. But um, I actually sent an email to some random website that potentially could be his. And I think it's pretty likely he'll respond and be on the set. So we can look forward to that. So you got, so you got interested in surgery as a seventh grader, and that stuck with you, huh? You never, like, veered to other careers, like... Uh, I don't know, wanting to be like a, go to space or be an athlete or something like that. Well, no, I mean, definitely not space. I'm kind of risk averse. And then athlete, I was on the swim team all through high school and college. So you kind of know that that's not the future. <laughs> and you, don't, <laughs> you don't find your way to the swim team because you're good at the other sports, you know. So I knew athletics wasn't going to be it. So uh, no, I never really changed my mind, you know. But I don't think I was crazy, like overly focused. I didn't like even see like a transplant till I was a resident. Like my kids, you know, they None of them are that focused, but if they were, I have no doubt that they would be like seeking experiences at a really young age. But no, I just kind of, you know, did the normal kind of entitled kid upbringing, private school, stuff like that. Right. Are you one of those people that just loves to operate or do you like more of the mental game of it? Or do you like, how do you describe your relationship with surgery now? Yeah, it's changed. I loved to operate. And I still do, but I, you know, I think as you become older and you kind of figure out how to operate, you just start to look for new challenges. And I find myself, one of my passions is like, you know, I'm sure you do these too, Josh, you do all these liver transplants for non-alcoholic steatohepatitis. All these people, it's always the same story. You know, they had fatty liver disease 10 years ago. No one ever did anything about it. Now they need a liver transplant. I love helping those people. It's such a, you know, and such a, important um, impact on their life. But I get so angry about, you know, the system of healthcare that failed to help these people prevent this progression of illness. I find that a little more challenging now than surgical care. I see that's kind of the way the direction things are going a little bit. You know, you br I was going to get into this later, but as long as you talked about it, I might as well get into it now. So you gave a talk today to our group and you were talking about the importance of public health. And I'll try to let you talk about it more than me, but you kind of identified that there are a lot of things we do wrong in healthcare. I think about this a lot. And I, you had a quote during your talk, and I'll, I won't probably say it perfectly, but I think when you were talking about the U.S. system, you said it's a great place to need a liver transplant, but not to have diabetes. And I think that fits into what you're saying about NASH. I think 
you know, we could say the same thing about alcohol. And I find it really interesting that for many patients, their first interaction with the healthcare system, or at least at this level, is when they already have like end stage disease of a disease that's really a disease of attrition. I think that rings true with what you're saying as well. Yeah, it's, I just find it very frustrating. I think a lot of people's first interaction with healthcare system, major interaction is with some acute event. You know, the system's rigged against, you know, kind of preventative care from stem to stern. You know, I've done a lot of work in the opioid space. And at one point at my, my health system, which I think has pushing 3,000 physicians, we had three times more physicians who could do a liver transplant than could treat psychiatric addiction. So we had six liver transplant surgeons and a two, two addiction psychiatrists, our entire faculty. Things like mental health, preventative care, health behaviors, health equity, they're such the foundation of good health for our society, but we are just uniquely locked and loaded to kind of take care of end organ disease in the United States. And we just fail by every measure on preventative health. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I couldn't agree more. And like, on the one hand, obviously, I, I think we both enjoy doing organ transplants and it's wonderful and we love the gift of the organ But with patients, whether they have, you know, fatty liver, NASH or, or alcoholism, which are both obviously real diseases, you can't help but think that the liver transplant is sort of a failure. It's not purely the healthcare system's failure, but it's a failure. And yet we're looked like it, we're looked at as these heroes. We have all these resources, all these coordinators. Like, wouldn't it be possible to have this set up with coordinators and um, pe- really aggressive access at the preventative level, really looking more at the organ transplant as a failure, but still a salvage mechanism if you get to that point? Like, wouldn't that be a better system? Yeah, I mean, in so many ways, yes. Liver transplant, kidney disease, all these things. There's always going to be people who just kind of need them. But I don't know the exact numbers, but the majority are preventable. These are these are failures. Um, not by the patient, and that's really fundamental. It's by the system. And it's so pervasive, and no health system does this exceptionally well. But in the United States, we do it the worst. Um, it really starts from out of the womb kind of access to resources and fundamental inequities within our kind of care delivery system and then just kind of percolates from there. So um, anyway, those are like you know, grand impossible challenges. And I think, you know, you, you, uh, you have a lot of opportunities, people like you and I, Josh, to do really interesting things and to do good and you have to continue to be challenging yourself to do something that you don't think you ever, you know, you can't really accomplish. So you asked me about, do I love to operate? Yeah, I do. It's always humbling, but I can do more. Um, and I think once you get good at identifying kind of root cause or foundational problems, I mean, I think you owe it to double down and try to fix them, which is hard to do. Yeah, I mean, that, that's what I both loved about your talk. And, and the reason why I respect what you've done in your career so much is that, I think you, correct me if I'm wrong, you enjoy the surgery, you, you certainly enjoy the training of people, but you look for ways to improve the system. And um, it seems to me like you take on problems that you think you can actually solve by kind of altering the incentives or trying to line up the payers and the payees. And you've actually solved some really great problems. It seems like you've tried to solve what you can in the system that you're given rather than trying, I don't know, tearing down the whole system, which is probably not something realistic that you can accomplish. Does that sound right to you? I don't know who listens to these podcasts, 
but I think uh, uh, hopefully a lot of students and residents. It's mostly uh, celebrities and music stars. <laughs> Good. Actually, one time I kind of went viral on social media. I don't even remember which one it was. And uh, some like, you know, academic thing. And it had like thousands, if not even millions of likes or hits or something like that. Some news outlet had paired one of my papers with Jennifer Lopez transforms the pedicure. (laughs) (laughs) And it was somehow linked into one thing that got sent around. So for for Jennifer Lopez, it probably isn't good advice, but I think um, you have to spend a certain amount of your time. And I, I actually look at my calendar every every week. And I'm like, all right, what am I spending my time doing? A certain amount of your time kind of like living within the system. You're totally outside of like where care happens and where science happens. You're just yelling all the time, then and you're not relevant. Maybe some politicians get away with that. But in the in the real world, you're not relevant. So you have to kind of be a citizen of the system. But you can't stop there. I think it's so easy as a successful professional to just kind of be, to settle for that. You have to spend, I say, a third of your time trying to really question it and then a third of your time trying to change it. And if you're too lazy to not put the effort in to try to change the things that make you really angry, um, then you're letting yourself down. One of my uh, mutual friend of ours, Dory, he's even crazier than, than you and I. And I remember Dory gave a talk and this is quote always stuck with me. And he's like, someone asked Dory, he's like, why do you like do so many things? And he's like, and goes, because everything pisses me off so much. <laughs> so <laughs> I think we all have things that fundamentally make us this makes me so angry. For me, it's health behavior. It's always been front and center for me. And you just got to, you know, you got to take advantage of that passion and try to try to help people. Yeah, I think that's really inspirational. And I, you're right, Dory is, is a... I guess I might call him a freak of nature in the amount of things he does and is involved with. And I think people like you and him are trying to make things better. Let me ask you this question. This is probably unfair, but if you had carte blanche and could just tear down the system and do it yourself, what would you do? Would you get away from pay for procedure? Would you, you know, cause we kind of have a healthcare system now that's focused on really getting as much money out of illness as humanly possible. That's, how I see it. And maybe that has led to our high costs and not necessarily better outcomes. Maybe that's overly harsh. But do you ever think about that, how you would redesign the whole thing? I mean, I, uh, I mean, a single payer system. I think we physicians would all take a 50% pay cut, you know, probably 20% of the healthcare costs go into some administrative overhead. Most of that would go away. And uh, there'd be a single payer healthcare system. I mean, I think that the data is conclusive that that facilitates better overall health in the population. Um, I don't see that happening it's in my lifetime, but you know, I've been fortunate enough to travel to some other, some other systems of care and kind of see how it happens. You know, take your pick, they do a better job. In our talk, we, what we had is access to quality health care in the United States. We rank 97th out of about 150 countries just behind Mongolia, but we spend about $10,000 per year per person in Mongolia spends 150. And I think it comes down to, and I could talk all day and I'm going to start to sound like a, a zealot, but uh, it comes down to good foundational health for children and working your way up, essentially systemically kind of working on the inequities in the system. The, the other sound bites are the parts of Chicago, somewhat famously, where the survival is, you know, 16 years difference. Oh, longevity for that matter, just out of uh, two miles in a, in a, um, along the train route. So a single-payer system with a very robust social safety net would be my answer. 
Um, unless I move to Scandinavia, I don't think that's going to happen in my lifetime. You know, I, I agree. I was really shocked in your talk today where you, I mean, I knew this already, but like when you see it on paper, when you show some of the differences in patients' life expectancy based on where they live, based on uh, uh, their, you know, whether they're black or white, based on their socioeconomic status. And I think we all know that's true. But when you see it on paper, it's sort of both shocking and a bit of a gut punch. And um, I've always been interested in this concept of, of life expectancy. I love reading about history and I think about the massive advances we made improving life expectancy over the last 150 years, mostly by better hygiene, you know, infectious disease, this kind of stuff. But, but now it almost seems like we've topped off and, and, and over the last few years are actually doing worse, whereas other countries are not. And it is amazing how many years of people's lives we're, we're basically leaving on the table. But kind of like you said, our, our healthcare system is not focused on addressing that. You know, we're fo I think the pandemic's made that clear. We're focused on keeping hospitals as full as possible, doing as many procedures as possible. Whereas, like you said, to improve life expectancy, if that was the goal, it would be something entirely different. Yeah, I mean, the data on of longevity, what affects longevity or what essentially prevents premature mortality, healthcare is about 10 or 20% of that. About a third is health behaviors, about 40% is health equity, and, and then 10% is environment. So we as the health system where uh, we spend so many resources as a country are coming up short. And I think that David devastating statistic that when I'm walking around my neighborhood like a middle middle-aged man thinking about problems in the world the thing I always come back to is that in the last four years in the United States longevity has gone down and that's never happened um, in a westernized country and uh, the only two countries in 2017 where longevity went down was Afghanistan and the United States so uh, and if you look at our longevity in 1980, we were on par with countries like France, and today our longevity is five and a half years less. That's five birthdays. And all the quality of life that goes with that, all the burden of comorbid disease that really picks away at your mental health and your physical um, thriving and function. And I think the solution is to align what we pay for with what adds value to people's lives. Um, and that's going to be a slow process. But um, I think the gig is up, and I do think... The system will slowly correct it if those of us who own, own power and privilege are willing to take this message and not just kind of resist it because because life is pretty good for doctors and hospitals. Life is pretty good. Yeah. I, when I was listening to your talk, I, I was thinking about that book, Deaths of Despair by Angus Deaton and Ann Case that mm -hmm. probably you've seen, but kind of talk about the causes of this drop in uh, life expectancy. It's rather shocking, but I don't want to be all negative. One thing I know about Mike, you're you're one of the more positive people I know, and you've spoken in the past about how much you love your job. I imagine some portion of that is that you're able to actually make some changes. Is that still how you feel? Are you still super positive about being a surgeon? Is it something you still tell people they absolutely should go into? And and what if they want to do public health? You still think it's a career that everyone should go into? Yeah, I mean, I think it's the most important job. You know, I, you know, I don't reflect on this. I talk to people like you, Josh, on podcasts, but, you know, deciding what you want to do for a living when you're in seventh grade is probably pathological. But, you know, every year I get more excited about the work and the challenges and the impact. Um, I really can't think of a more kind of impactful 
job where you get to do science, you get to make people better with surgery. And then probably the most fun part of the job for me is working with, you know, trainees, other, you know, faculty, just other amazing people who inspire me to think about hard problems. So, yeah, I I don't know anyone who has a better job than me. I say there's probably 5% of my day-to-day where I'm doing something where it's not exactly what I want to be doing. People frequently ask me, you know, you know, what do you want to do next? What other job? And I'm like, gosh, I just have the best job in the world. I don't know what else. And, you know, I think it's somewhat telling that, you know, my wife's a physician, but you know, I have three kids and I think they all want to be physicians. They see how exciting it can be to just think about these really, really hard problems and not have them make you weaker, but really have them, those challenges make you stronger. And uh, you get up in the morning and be like, gosh, geez, well, maybe I, in some small way, can have a little bit of a positive impact. So, um, so yeah, best job in the world. Sign up. So very lucky. Yeah, I love that. I love how you talk about it because even when we talk about problems about being a doctor, it's always hard to work in a system that has problems, but it's so great to be able to try and help someone every day, try and solve problems, try and reach out and help people. And you're learning every day. I personally think the hardest part of the job for me uh, is dealing with complications and bad outcomes. Um, I've written about this a lot in the past and um, I never, I didn't realize when I was training how hard this would be. Like I knew as a resident, of course I cared that people did well, but you never quite felt that same level of ownership as you do when you're the attending, you're the final word. And I never realized how challenging that would be when you have someone do badly, whether it's because you made a mistake, which sometimes happens, or even when you do everything right. Do you agree that that's the hardest thing? And and how do you deal with that? Like, what are your coping mechanisms with that? Yeah, it's a great question, Josh. Certainly, I've avidly read and listened to you speak about this. Um, to be honest, it is not the hardest part for me. Um, and it's some probably a, a complicated mix of of I'm not as good a person as you are, maybe not as good a doctor. Um, and I mean that sincerely. Um, maybe you don't get as many complications as oh, I do. No, 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 no. <laughs> we go through liver transplants. We, we, we invented the complication, right? So um, I think it went away somewhere through the decade of training where you're just like, all right, well, you know, bad things happen. You know, what's the next thing? Um, what do I need to do for, you know, Mr. Smith or Mrs. Smith next to try to help them? Um, and my experience with complications is that, some of the most special relationships I've had with patients have been with the ones who have struggled the most because it's just so humbling, you know, it's just so humbling. Particularly, you know, I do a lot of pediatric stuff and, you know, it's just, it just, it's just so humbling. So I think it's important um, to have such a lens on, you know, our own failings, frailty, and just how powerless we can be. So no, I, I kind of always spun complications as a gift that really empower me to, to work harder and to do better. So that's how I use a, That's my mental model around complications. But uh, that's really deeply rooted in, you know, complex defense mechanisms around them. I don't really know what the hardest part of the job, um, you know, the building this new tower at my organization for cardiovascular neurosurgical interventions, new building, the billion dollar building. And you just kind of like, well, what what society needs cardiovascular neurosurgical interventions? Kind of needs mental health care. It needs nutrition for the, you know, 40 million hungry people in our country. That I find 
that that tension between does the system I work in really make the world a better place or not? I find that kind of gets to my core um, more than the individual patient kind of challenges and failings. But nonetheless, what response do you get when you talk to like hospital leadership about the kind of things you spoke to us today about that we're missing the missing the boat here on where we should be putting our money or, you know, we have a responsibility to do better. Are people supportive of that? Yeah, they are. I, I think um, I spent a lot of time with the, the payers and the purchasers and then hospital leadership. And, you know, I'm old enough now that a lot of the hospital leadership are, you know, men and women who I you know, kind of grew up with, so to speak, within my institution. And I sincerely believe that every stakeholder in healthcare, trainees, physicians, nurses, health systems, pharma, payers, purchasers, everyone's trying to do the right thing. Everyone's trying to make people's lives better. I don't think there, there's evil everywhere, but very little of, it, little of it in healthcare. I think it's just this vexing relationship between margin and revenue and admission, um, where you, as an organization, you can't afford, if, like, if I was running our health system, we would go broke because I'd be like, we're not building the building. We're going to open up a diabetic clinic black people, <laughs> you know, um, free care for everybody. So um, right. I have my role and they have theirs. And I really reflect, you know, the hard decisions that, that they have to make and, and they need me and I need them. To, uh, so I think we all have our part to play. And I think one of the big challenges is where, you know, identifying where you fit into the complex mix. Like what is your role in this Um and, and you can't totally go 100% one direction or the other because that's how you get evil. you got to stay kind of rooted in the balance. Yeah, I like how you talk about margin and and there's the reality of the hospital has to keep running and I guess make money to support itself and all its resources. But that margin isn't always aligned with the mission that you would choose. And I think you've been really smart about trying to dig out parts of that margin to support the things you want to do, which is really amazing. I think one of the kind of biggest accomplishments that I know of that you've done is really changed, at least for me, the way I think about opioids. You've written and talked a lot about that, but you've kind of made us all aware that we were using way too many opioids for surgery. And in addition to that, you guys have introduced all these great pathways with surgery where we give patients very few or even no opioids. And I've been actually blown away in in taking care of my donor, my patients who donate kidneys, that we are using so few opioids and they're leaving so much faster and they're feeling so much better. It occurs to me that we've been using them wrong for so long for a lot of reasons. One, we, we misunderstood. There was some false information. And two, it was just easier to give more opioids than actually deal with other problems. Is that one of kind of your the things you're most proud of? Yeah. I mean, my interest in opioids started with doing organ donors, Josh. You know, and I'm, I always have the story I tell of this. I did three in a row of these young overdoses probably like six or seven years ago and i was like what the what is going on there's there's a problem made me really angry Mm -hmm. so um and i was helped by a medical student medical student you know was like keeps you honest on things you know and she i remember she was asking like why did all three of these people you know (laughs) overdose so kind of pre-epidemic awareness but but when the epidemic was raging and then uh so it's been very rewarding and we've had such an impact relatively quickly that that's i think what really fuels my interest in trying to take on some of these even much harder problems so but i'm definitely proud of it i'm definitely proud of the the folks i got to work with to do to do kind of uh the best care 
And it's really the, the it brings together kind of like good science with um, patient centeredness and good communications and, and then understanding business and healthcare. You cannot change just because it's the right thing to do very easily. You have to align financial incentives to make the change feasible within organizations. No one can do more work. There has to be resources to come with it. And just kind of doing that background work and making those relationships with the state of Michigan or Blue Cross to, to do that work. So no, it's super rewarding. But all it does is just make you angry about new problems and you feel this like need to try to leverage the lessons learned to try to fix, fix you know, harder things. Yeah, right. Do you ever think you wish you, you could get into policy and be like a Don Berwick or, or someone like that? Or you think you have more power as a surgeon trying to do these things? I don't know. I, I don't think I'm, I don't have enough foundational kind of knowledge on health policy. I do a lot of health policy work, but I see these people talk, even some in my own department, they're like, yeah, I'm not in their league. I think some people view me as an educator. Some people view me as kind of a quality improvement person. Some people view me as a, as a clinician. I don't know. I think there's something to be said about living in all the spaces in a relatively balanced way. So no, I mean, I think uh, I can keep doing what I'm doing until they let me, until they make me stop. <laughs> I don't know. I wouldn't mind stop stopping donor call because that's really tiring. I don't know how you do that, Josh, but uh, um, I could give that up probably today. <laughs> yeah. I mean, on the one hand, I love the donors as I know you do and meeting the donor families is so special um, and one of the best things we do. On the other hand, the challenges of doing that and all the other things we do, and it always involves travel and very difficult logistics and it's very taxing. So I think it's a young man or woman's job in a way, but um, that is tough, but I do, I do agree with you. Like we, I think every week I'm on, I get offered organs from an organ, from an, uh, an opioid overdose. It's pretty shocking. Um, we still have a lot of work to do. Um, but at least if we can get surgeons to not be part of the problem, I like that. I you you've spoken a lot that dentists have played a big role and it always makes me think of that Seinfeld, uh, line about being an anti-dentite bastard, <laughs> you know, small world. I know we're not going to talk about the election, but as I was nervous about it, I was actually watching Seinfeld kind of like five minute kind of bits last night and that one came up and my youngest kid and I were in tears because he has to go to the dentist next week. He's like, does this mean I don't have to go to the dentist? Can I be an anti-dentite? So. <laughs> That's one of, the, one of the best episodes and definitely that show is one of my favorites. So, all right, let me get towards the end here. Um, I could talk to you forever, but... Uh, probably people who listen to this walking their dog are ready to go inside. So let me just ask you a few stupid questions at the end because that always seems fun. Do you have a, a over? Do you have a favorite medical show? Maybe Mash is your answer. Yeah, Mash. Yeah, I now watch a lot of uh, like kind of like English mysteries. I don't know why, like old people. Apparently, one of my friends from the UK told me that these are the shows that they play from noon to one o'clock that people who are retired have nothing else to do watch. So I, I like to watch those. That's awesome. I, you know, you probably don't know this about me, but I actually often operate with an English accent because I think it makes me sound smarter. And <laughs> <laughs> and when you say like, we passed the diathermy, love, everyone gets really excited. So yeah, it beats our, our New Jersey accents, undoubtedly. Yeah. <laughs> uh, Jersey comes up too. All right. Here's another one. Um, this is a hard one. Do you have, like, I sometimes ask this on interviews. Who, who is your hero? Do you have any heroes, either alive or dead, that you think about and kind of motivate you? Gosh, good question. Who is my hero? Um, I don't know if I have a good answer. I really admire excellence wherever I see it. And 
in youth. I think I would probably think of some people, I don't want to embarrass them, who are mm-hmm. you know, very young and very effective, um, people like that. No, it's a good answer. I was hoping you would say I was your hero, but um, it's a decent answer. Number, um, number two. Yeah. One last one. Do you have a favorite writer or a favorite book? My favorite, I'm not the avid reader that you are, but I do do my fair share. Um, I'm very intentional about my own professional, personal kind of development, leadership development, stuff like that. My favorite writer is probably Dan Pink. He mostly writes for the business community, but I always, um, I always found his writing really resonated with me and helped me understand kind of how I fit in to the complexity and, and where I can help people do their best work. So I think Dan Pink is my favorite, uh, favorite writer. He's kind of like you, Josh. I don't know. Have you, have you like, have you gone to lunch with Dan Pink or anything like that? <laughs> no, I, I mean, he's not big enough for me. Uh, no, I'm just kidding. <laughs> no, I don't know him actually. I don't, I have to, I love reading. I'm a massive reader. I don't read a lot of self-improvement because I think, or like leadership or that kind of stuff is too depressing to me, but I do try to alternate between fiction and nonfiction. That's something I've been trying to do. And, uh, there's just so many wonderful books out there. I'm always looking for new ones. So maybe I'll check that out. You know, I was going to start the interview by saying muck fishing, but I forgot. To- <laughs> I like to read Anthony Horowitz. He's a kind of a murder mystery guy. And, um, and then, of course, um, there's this book in Transplantation that I've, I've made all of my children read also that uh, I'm rather, I admire significantly. But I don't know who wrote that. It's a hack. Yeah, I think I heard something about that. I'll probably get that guy on the show at some point. <laughs> Well, we should, I probably should end it, but like, I do want to end it by resolving one thing. Don't you agree that the upper peninsula of Michigan should actually be part of yeah, Wisconsin? I mean, almost all of our patients, it's always the same story because there aren't many people there, but they get their care in Wisconsin, but then they need a transplant. They have Medicaid insurance, so they can't go to Wisconsin for their care. So then they have to um, come 11 hours to Ann Arbor for their liver transplant. So, yeah, I think you guys, maybe there could be some kind of, um, maybe a militia in Wisconsin could just take it with force. We just kind of give it to you. <laughs> I might be able to set something like that up. That sounds like a good idea. <laughs> All right, Mike, it was so great to have you. And, uh, you're really an inspiration to me. Um, I know, um, if anyone out there gets a chance to see Mike's talks, he's really inspiring. And, uh, kind of shows us all that we have a responsibility to try and make things better around us, um, which is not a negative, it's a positive. So I've enjoyed watching your career and uh, we'll definitely have you on in the future again, if you're uh, willing. Willing, of course. Uh, well, anyway, Josh, thank you. Thanks for your uh, always innovative and creative ways to um, push kind of important work. So you're, uh, thank you so much. Thanks, man. Go blue. Yeah, go blue. And don't forget to subscribe on iTunes, Spotify, Podbean, and Stitcher. Invite your friends to listen in if you have any. And if you're feeling generous, rate us on your favorite podcast app, but only if you're going to give us a good rating. It really does make a huge difference. Thank you so much. The Surgery Set is a production from the Department of Surgery at the University of Wisconsin-Madison. This episode was produced by J.P. Swenson and me, Josh Mesrich. Quentin Tarantino did not direct it. It was recorded by Josh Mesrich and edited by J.P. Swenson. Visit us at surgery.wisc.edu, where you can find links to Grand Rounds, free CME credits, and more. 
You can also check out the UW School of Medicine and Public Health video library for a wide range of medical education resources at videos.med.wisc.edu. Give our Facebook page a like and follow us on Twitter at WISC Surgery. Please feel free to let us know how we're doing. Rate and review us on your podcast app and don't hesitate to let us know any topics you'd like us to cover. Until next time, from all of us here at the set, thank you for listening. You are likely a better person than you were just 30 minutes ago. You are very welcome. <laughs>